stop trying so hard to fill my void, for I have started to love the way it makes me ache. Stop trying so hard to fix me and help me embrace the void. This void quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 129 of Embrace the Void, where I am I'm still processing the shock that I'm starting grad school in the fall. Um, I've been accepted to the Rutgers Education PhD program, and I am both stoked and completely terrified, though more stoked than terrified. Uh, I couldn't have gotten there without the wonderful support of this community. Um, thank you all so very much for everything. Um, Okay, that's enough. More than enough about me. This week's guest is really wonderful, and I genuinely enjoyed this conversation, so I will get out of the way of the goodness. My guest this week is Dr. Elizabeth Barnes, professor of philosophy at Glorious UVA, where she does work on the intersection of metaphysics, social philosophy, feminist philosophy, and ethics, especially with relation to disability issues. Elizabeth, would you like to say wahoo to the void? Wahoo-wah. <laughs> I still don't really know what that means, but I guess. This is all UVA, UVA inside baseball. Years now. <laughs> it's just it's something it's something I understand that one is that one ought to say. That's right. Time. It's it's an expressivist signaling. It doesn't actually. It's not exactly. it doesn't have any propositional content. Yeah. It's just of emoting yeah. properly. Wahoo! Uh, to the void. Wahoo! Out of the void. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to chat with you about um, disability issues today. But since we are talking UVA, I do have to check in and and see. Um, for, I went to undergrad there, and I'm I'm curious how the uh, my my darling Seaville is holding up with the white nationalist invasions and whatnot. Is it still oh. still the glorious place to live? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Nazis with tiki torches, notwithstanding. <laughs> Um, it's still, um, it is still a glorious place to live. Uh, you know, it still has its, its, uh, its fair share of, uh, grown men in pastel shorts, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's still, um, you know, Blue Ridge Mountains and, uh, the mm. Appalachian Trail and, uh, and, uh, all that, that sort of wonderfulness. So yeah, no, I love it here. Yeah, and I, from what I gather, you do it right because you do it with some incredibly cute doggos. Which is I really... have, like, I don't want to brag, but I have the two best dogs in the universe, and Aww. like all other all other dogs are number three or lower. No, <laughs> I believe that it's uh, yeah. actually true for every dog that every dog is in fact it's the true. best dog. It's yeah. true. Every dog is the best dog. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny how that works. Um, but mine are like especially the best dogs. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I have two um, amazing, wonderful rescue border collies, and yes. we spend a lot of time in Shenandoah National Park, uh, wandering around <laughs> with yeah, them yeah, uh, yeah. and exploring. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's 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 the good life. Like I, I still don't know really what well being is, but uh, mm-hmm. I know it, I, I I I can feel it when I experience it, and uh, yeah, it, it it involves dogs. I I'm pretty sure that much yeah getting a dog is pretty much my top project of worth at this particular moment um get on that man yeah (laughs) no i'm I'm trying so hard i'm gonna get the uh, backyard and i'm gonna get the dog and then i'm just gonna be set um yep but yeah we could i could talk dog metaphysics with you forever um but i feel like uh we're never gonna set that aside we're gonna get on to the the harder (laughs) work here um so 
to give a little bit of background, right, um, in, in reading material, your, your materials and things, I would say, right, it's probably fair to say that for many, you would look like a sort of textbook example of a postmodern neo-Marxist, social constructivist, SJW, feminist, standpoint, critical theorist, liberal. Um, did, I think I got all the buzzwords there. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> in the middle yeah. of I missed anything important. But um but on the other hand, right, you also, from what I gather, take a fairly strong position in regard to questioning consensus, um, which I think, you know, some would argue are central to all of those things that I just referenced, um, yeah. but not not to the conception of them that some folks have. Um, and that sort of, even if this allows undesirable views to get airtime, you think that we should be questioning consensus. And I'm curious, are there some particular places where you feel like open rebellion against consensus would be more welcome? Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 tricky, right? Because I think um, on the one hand, I think it's important to acknowledge the extent to which views, including academic views, can be harmful and they can harm real people and real people's lives. And I think sometimes academics, especially in philosophy, just have this attitude of like, oh, I'm, I'm just following the argument where it leads. And they, they, they don't necessarily take the time to to educate themselves about um, people's experience, and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily take the time to think through, you know, the, the 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 harms that might be caused by by the things that they're saying. And I think also very often when we we talk about uh, you know teaching the controversy or things like that, it's it's it it can sometimes feel a little bit like just the same the same tired arguments get wheeled out over and over and over again. And then mm-hmm. people who are sort of visibly members of minority groups or underrepresented groups in philosophy are then asked or like, okay, responds to this, respond to this argument, respond to this. And that, that can get tiring. That can get frustrating. And you, it can also feel like you're just doing it for show rather than actually engaging. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I get where people who are, who are tired of engaging with um, arguments that uh, that they find offensive or that they find um, harmful are, are coming from. But at the same time, I really, really am sort of uh, deeply committed to the importance of uh, norms that allow for open dialogue in academic discourse, especially philosophical discourse, and that allow for questioning consensus and that allow for engaging with arguments that you might find offensive or that you might find uh, politically insensitive or that kind of thing. Um, And the biggest reason that I'm really committed to that idea is that I think um, we have to be committed to that ideal if we're going to protect the people that are truly vulnerable um, Mm -hmm. and allow them to be able to question consensus and to question the status quo. I mean, if I thought that just like, you know, lefty woke bourgeois academics um we're always gonna track the truth then i wouldn't be so worried about saying okay the lefty woke bourgeois academics just get to decide what's acceptable and anything that that doesn't have their seal of approval we can just say okay that's not acceptable um and we're not going to talk not about that but, lefty woke externalism as an epistemology um, really i really i don't necessarily think they are truth tracking right i think that there might be um the correspondence theory with uh, say have to say about the uh, the woke intelligentsia <laughs> yeah uh, we've might the be cases where 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 the discourse is getting it wrong right mm-hmm. and so i think if we're gonna protect people who are you know i think and I think academia is a power structure and I think there are going to be people who are sometimes at the wrong, on the wrong end of that power structure, right. Who are just Mm -hmm. not well positioned to argue for themselves or to argue for, um, for their own interests. And, you know, there will be places where bourgeois academics just miss things. Um, I include myself in this, right. I'm sure I'm wrong about tons of things. And I think, uh, we need to then have a norm of discourse that says it's okay for people to question consensus and it's okay for people to cut against the grain. So it's not that I can sing- single out like any area of discourse and be like, Oh, right. Here's a consensus that needs to be questioned more. I just think we have a, mm-hmm. we need to have a norm that allows for questioning consensus and questioning, you know, going against the grain. I also just think in general, just, I think it's easy to, 
we we often underestimate the value of really smart people who disagree with you. Um, mm-hmm. Really smart people who profoundly disagree with you. Um, I actually think like one of the saddest things. Um, well, actually, I take that back. Like by far the saddest things about the current state of politics in America is like all the material harm that's being caused. But um, mm-hmm. a mildly sad thing is the extent to which like we've lost the intelligent conservative that's worth arguing with. Um, yes, yes. And there's it's something, an endangered species. I agree. Yeah. There's something incredibly valuable about having a person that you fundamentally disagree with that you then need to say, need to explain why you disagree with them, because that makes mm-hmm. your arguments better. That makes you be intellectually honest. Yeah, that's, that's actually one of the factors about which I'm most pessimistic right now that I think is causing yeah. a lot of our spiral. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, and it just, you know, it's it's when the other side is saying things like we should send nuclear missiles into clouds to stop hurricanes. It's easy to be like, OK, so like me and my friends are just smarter than everybody else is. Right. And that I think then easily develops a kind of intellectual complacency, which makes for bad arguments. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one of the best ways to develop good arguments is by talking to people that disagree with you, um, including people who profoundly disagree with you. And I think Mm -hmm. one really troubling thing in certain, maybe like the, the, the woker corners of academic discourse is that I think it's, very well-intentioned people often when they see a person who faces a certain type of oppression, um, Mm -hmm. developing philosophical views about that type of oppression. Um, Mm -hmm. They just often want to bend over backwards to agree with that person or to support the view or not to criticize the view. And I'm sure there's, there's all sorts of reasons why this is the case. Um, But at least when I, I see people doing this for me and doing this for my work. And I, I hate it. I really, really hate it because I feel like it's going to make my work worse. Um, I need the compliments um, and the courtesy (laughs) of really, really good objections to my views. Um, And I know that a lot of what I'm saying is like really controversial and I need for people to push back against it. Um, And Mm-hmm. There's actually something, there's an undercurrent of some of the way that people are treated when they do this kind of philosophy of kind of like the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, um, I was just thinking. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, you know, good, good for you. And people don't engage with it the way that they engage with, you know, analytic metaphysics or standard philosophy of language or that kind of thing. They, they don't push back as hard. And I think it then harms the people doing this kind of philosophy and it harms the philosophy. And so I think that's a big part of why I I think we have, we need to have a a more robust norm of being able to have fights without, about this stuff and being able to have open discourse about this stuff. Cause I think it'll make the philosophy better. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I I think one thing that I might point to is a a potential cause is if not an understanding, a misunderstanding perhaps of like standpoint epistemology, for example, which like some people have the impression that you should defer in that kind of way because that person has access to the truth in a way that, that you don't. And if there's, if you feel like there's a problem with the argument, it's because you don't have the proper positioning to understand it. Um, I think that's probably sort of one cause as well as the desire to just, you know, genuinely be. I think um, actually our our mutual friend Liam uh, talked about this on when he was on about how he feels like he gets this. And and a lot of times it's just kind of like people are just trying to be supportive, um, but it can come off or it can genuinely be that like they're not they're not challenging you as much as they should be. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, or they're they're confu- mm-hmm. they're confusing uh, conclusions they morally approve of with arguments mm-hmm. that are good, mm-hmm. um, or pe- people they want to take themselves to be agreeing with with arguments that are good. But I think that's absolutely right. The point about standpoint epistemology um, with people making a conflation, it's like, oh, so as a as a disabled person, I think it's true that I do have access to experiences mm-hmm. that non-disabled people don't have that are going to inform the way I think about things and that are going to inform you know, the kind of stuff I'm interested in and uh, the kind of approach I'll take to things. But once I then 
take a step back from that and start developing a philosophical theory where I'm talking about, okay, like, what do these experiences mean? And I'm also not just talking at that point about my own experiences. I'm talking about other people's experiences. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to develop a philosophical interpretation, right? I don't have any kind of special first person insight into that. Nobody does. That's not the kind of thing that anybody has first person um, insight into that sort of like, like how ought we best to interpret these experiences? What do these experiences mean? What what is the what is the philosophical upshot of the fact that people have these experiences? That's the kind of thing that I think, no matter what standpoint you're coming from, people have equal epistemic access to. And mm-hmm. I certainly don't have special epistemic um, access mm-hmm. to it, just because you know I have the experiences of of having lived with disability. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that's an easy conflation to make. Um, and I think you're right about that. As a really, as a good way to distinguish it, that like when you're talking about your own personal experience is different from when you're formulating these sort of formal arguments that we want yeah. um, to, to challenge in various ways. Um, and yeah, it's funny, you, the way you were talking about it earlier, I sort of half realized that like, not to the same degree, but to some extent, like for philosophers, I'm just following the argument is like our version of I'm just following orders. Um, and that like it can lead us astray in similar kinds of ways but i also agree with you that like we need to be the ones who are doing these arguments and and being willing to have these arguments and that it's about creating the right kinds of spaces for having them in a way that sort of minimizes sort of splash damage to um the people that we are talking about sometimes yeah Um, yeah and And it's like maybe Maybe Aristotle was onto something when he said virtue is the mean between two vices. You yeah, know? Yes. Yeah. Right. Maybe he was onto a little something when he wasn't talking about women. Um, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of this particular thing, and then we can get on to um, some of the content of, of your um, writing. You also, I think, take a somewhat iconoclastic position with regard to uh, the issue of terminology. So I was wondering if maybe you could um, talk a little bit about whether you feel like there's an overemphasis on the left with precision, with not, well, not precision of terminology, but with, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like gatekeeping, I guess, of terminology. Um, and if how how you feel like we can, how you feel like we should approach this in a way that is, is respectful, but more productive. Yeah. So again, like one thing that that I that I do want to emphasize is is I I don't think that language is unimportant. I think language Mm -hmm. is very important and I think language is very powerful. Um, But I think so often what is communicated and the power of language goes so far beyond the specific terminology that we use. And Mm -hmm. very often debates in these sort of identity politics issues about terminology, they boil down to like, okay, you know, is it better to say disabled person or is it better to say person with disability or, you know, this particular word, is it ableist or this usage, is it ableist or so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the point at which I don't care very much. Um, I really, I think that often these issues are, they, they, they can be overemphasized and I'm not sure that they're overemphasized on the left in general. If we're talking about left grassroots politics, Mm -hmm. I think they're often overemphasized on the left as it appears on the internet because they're a thing that people can debate on the internet. Like I actually don't see them talked about all that often actual at, you know, like actual Hmm. protests and rallies and that kind of thing um it's it does appear to be more of uh, a feature of certain types of discourse um maybe in the sense that like social media allows for easy language games rather than yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. um and i guess my concern about it is primarily that um so i guess i have a couple of concerns one is that it's just a distraction from the bigger issues of the material conditions of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm more concerned about being able to get into the room, right? Once I'm in the room, if you call me a person with a disability or a disabled person or a differently abled person, like that's less of an issue for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And there I'm obviously speaking for myself, um, which is all any of us can ever do, but just, just, reporting my own preferences and my own biases i just think that um there are these much 
much more profoundly impactful issues Mm -hmm. that seem to matter to me more. Um, The place where I feel like some, I guess, sociological concern about the way that terminology wars are often used is the way that they're used to sort of, I think they create a high price of entry into conversations Mm -hmm. because people are afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or they don't know the right words or people get shouted down for not saying the right words or, and so I think it can make conversations more insular than they need to be. And also just to be perfectly honest. So I I was, uh, I was raised extremely evangelical. Hmm. Um, and the, extent to which some areas of uh like left-leaning identity politics discourse remind me of evangelical culture is unsettling Mm -hmm. and some of the stuff around language and correct language and calling out uh you know various like people for not using you know it's extreme call outs for people for not using exactly the right language and so on and so forth really remind me of a lot of a lot of aspects of evangelical culture in a way that I am always just going to be immediately and mm-hmm. strongly suspicious of. Do, so, do you think that's like a intrinsic, never going to go away problem? Or do you think that that's a, a sort of flare up in the, the sort of polarization cycle that we're all locked into at this point? And like, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way on the left? That's an interesting question. Um, speaking of Liam, again, I can hear his voice sort of whispering in my ear, <laughs> saying, saying it's horrible, class right? politics. Um, uh, right. We're going to say his name one say, more time and he's going to show up on the feed. I know, I know. I feel like we, we were, we were going to summon him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... He did want credit for this interview, actually. So I feel like this is the best way we can give him credit. <laughs> by constant Liam, name Liam dropping. we give you credit for making this happen. Um... So I do think there is an element of um, oftentimes when you create communities, you invariably create power structures and then people are going to want ways of reinforcing those power structures. Um, mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that's probably part of it. I think it's also probably um, it can. I think it's probably not an accident that conversations often get derailed from material conditions of economic oppression and on to like, well, you know, do we want to say this word or do we want to say that word or do we want to, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do think a lot of this at the moment has to do with just, um, you know, the the social media age is... uh, we're we're still figuring out how it works and um like how to how to be human with each other in this age and how to communicate with each other and of course there's a sense in which words words are going to feel more salient when you see them typed out rather than when um people are just yeah yeah exactly and so um all that to say yeah i have no idea Ever since 2016, I've stopped attempting to predict the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people just, have gotten off that bandwagon, yeah. I'm just here in the strangest timeline, um, mm-hmm. you know, wa- watching watching what happens. So, yeah, we'll see. But I think you bring up exactly one of the main reasons why I'm at least a little cautiously optimistic that we are in a liminal transitional phase here, right? Mm-hmm. Where, um, you know, like... Our generation remembers a time before social media and we are, I think, still in a sense, digital natives in that we're we're we've been on it enough from a young enough age that we're still mostly hooked into it. But I think like it has changed our generation over the course of our lifetimes and it is almost certainly like radically altering every other generation in various kinds of ways, except for ones who just like aren't really engaging with it much at all. So I I think it's very hard to know what the next sort of, if we're going to hit a new equilibrium or if we're just in for like constant flux as technology accelerates in this way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, in general, I tend to be optimistic about the future. Um, Mm. And I also tend to be of the view, (laughs) even post 2016, I think, um, you know, you did say weirdest timeline and timeline and not worst timeline. It is is the weirdest timeline. But what I, what I always tell my students is like, if you think about history in like big period, think about it in like 50 50 year chunks rather than Mm -hmm. five year chunks. 
there's absolutely no period in time I would rather be alive than now or think I would be better off than now as a woman with a medically complex disability. Sure. Though that may and, also be true for 50 years in the future, right? Given climate change. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I also tend to think there are a lot of issues that are arising and that are new with how we communicate with each other and how we attempt to be kind to each other in this uh, social media mm-hmm. age. But I also think, you know, um, the kids are all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're, mm-hmm. mo- they're mostly all right. And I don't, uh, as I, as I become uh, an elder millennial, um, I don't ever want to be one of those people who starts like writing the op-eds about kids these days, you know, it's like, Zoomers I these days, like, yeah. If I could do one thing, uh, if I could like wave a magic wand that would remove all editorials of the form, the next generation is trash. I feel like I would do an intellectual good for (laughs) humankind. If you could merely remove all the Brett Stevens articles, it would be enough. (laughs) Yeah, Diane, you. Yes. So, okay. I think, I think we're, we're broadly in agreement there. So, so let's talk about your book a little bit, right? You wrote a book, um, cool. The Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. Um, and in this, you argue that for so your thesis is something like disability is a social phenomenon uh, rather than a way of being that's inherently or perhaps objectively, depending on how we want to parse those terms, as, as being actually worse off. Um, and you say, first of all, you say that this is a widespread view amongst the sort of disability rights community, um, but that it's not a well-received position amongst philosophers. And I'm curious why you think there is that disconnect. Yeah. So the, the position that I, that I argue for is both that, that disability is a is not just a biomedical phenomenon, even though it often has a biomedical reality to it. But that it's, it's to fully understand disability, you need to understand it as a social phenomenon, as, as a socially embedded phenomenon. And then mm-hmm. also that there isn't this inherent or like really deep connection between disability and well-being. That disability doesn't automatically by itself almost always make you worse off. Like you're not just... Um, mm-hmm. It's not a singer view where your utility just goes down. Exactly. Yeah. You know, de facto worse off in virtue in virtue of being disabled, Um, Mm -hmm. even though disability is the kind of thing that absolutely can negatively impact your your Um, Mm well-being. And I think this is a very common view about disability within disability rights communities. And a lot of what I was trying to do in the book is give uh, I think I've I've said I've said before, this book is kind of like my love letter to analytic philosophy, trying to give (laughs) an explanation of what this view would be in terms that are acceptable to analytic philosophers, but also then give the kind of arguments that analytic philosophers are uh, familiar with and accepting of for this view that I think a lot of people have on the face of it found very implausible or found hard to think about. I don't know why it has so little traction in analytic philosophy. Um, or has had so little traction. I, yeah, that's as kind of a sociological question that I I mm-hmm. have some speculative guesses. Mm-hmm. I think in one sort of semi th- thing that seems semi plausible to me is that in general, right? Non, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that non-disabled people seem to systematically overestimate the bad effects of disability. And tend mm. to systematically overestimate how, like, how bad it would be to have a disability, how much disability would detract from well-being, how unhappy disabled people will say they are. So we have that, you know, there's there's a large body of research that suggests that non-disabled people as a group are are just bad at this kind of thing. At least when we're talking about um, the context of physical disabilities, mm. which is what mm-hmm. what my book is about. And by and large, there's just there's there's surprisingly few physically disabled people in philosophy. You just, Hmm. you just, you just don't see it. You do not see it. It's really, really interesting. You, you see it very rarely. And so, I mean, part of it could just be a function of this is, uh, I think people as a whole, non-disabled people as a whole find the view of disability held within the disability rights community pretty Mm-hmm. unusual striking counterintuitive all of that um and then i think philosophers are just kind of a usual subset of non-disabled people as a whole 
And maybe this is just an example of philosophy kind of reifying common sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe common sense isn't exactly right in this instance. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's a guess. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't. There's this great line in a paper by Ted Sider where he says, I wouldn't bet my house or even my bicycle. Um, (laughs) This is this is a guess on which I, I, I wouldn't bet my house or even my bicycle if I had one. Um, That's fair. That's fair. I just, you know, I think it's it's interesting to try to figure out why different groups are are sort of more in favor or averse to certain kinds of positions. Yeah. Um, Especially because, like, as you point out, uh, for example, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a strong association between physical disability, at least, and like mental incapacity or something like that. So that that wouldn't really explain the breakdown, it seems like. Um, So, yeah. Uh, so let's let's dive into I guess a little bit of why you why you make this argument so that maybe we can hope to convince some more analytic philosophers who might be listening. Um, so you say, like you said, the disability is neither suboptimal nor bad, yet compatible with harm. Um, can you explain that compatibility a little bit more? How that how that would um, sort of play out, maybe in a personal experience or um, broadly speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part of what I have tried to argue. Um, is that I think disability is actually of a kind with so many of our experiences in life, so many of Mm. our rich, you know, deeply socially embedded experiences in life, which are very rarely all positive or all negative. Mm -hmm. Most things in life, even the things that we value the most, um, are are kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, like having a dog, um, are kind kind of a mixed bag when it comes to well-being, right? So, you know, I, I'm of an age where a lot of people that I know are having children or have young children. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to new parents, I've noticed that if you ask them, like like their their day-to-day conversation tends to be like the conversation of like people who have just returned from the wars, right? Yes, just, right, right. There's a shell shock look. Yep. Exactly. They're just filled with horror stories about like how little sleep they've gotten and like all of these horrible things that have happened that involve like like poop and vomit and all things like being projected in all sorts of places and like like how tired they are and how they don't have any free time and then you're like all right so you know how how how's how's being a parent how's this and they're like oh it's amazing it's changed my life (laughs) and um me as a like determined non-parent i'm just like okay (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um I, i i i believe them but it's obviously complicated, right? Mm-hmm. It is it is a mixed bag in terms of in terms of well-being. And even for things that so you know, to go back to the example um we, we've talked about before of uh of having dogs, even for things like like my experience of having dogs is almost like unequivocally I'm just like, oh yes, it's the best thing. It's the most amazing thing. It's the, you know, um but there are like sometimes dogs are gross, right? Sometimes dogs are just <laughs> disgusting yeah. right mm-hmm. yep and you know there's just all sorts of things come out of various orifices and you have to clean it up and you know they, they eat things and then they throw up the thing that they eat and then they try to eat what they threw up and then it's just like oh my god um so it's not like loving having dogs means that you mm-hmm. love every part of having a dog no i don't think anybody does I don't think there are many things in life that you love every part of it. Right. (laughs) And so I think that one of the things that is worth thinking about in in the context of disability is that we don't need to deny that there are things about disability that just like suck beyond the telling of it. Right. It's just like, they're just awful. Um, But that is consistent um, with, they're also being things that are valuable and they're also being things that are um, enriching and they're being things that are valuable and enriching that are unique to the experience of disability, right? 
the yeah, that's, that's where Rebecca, I think the, the disconnect is. Yeah. It seems like right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And people, um, this, this is actually where the phrase um, disability gain comes from. Where mm-hmm. it's like we talk so much about loss in the context of disability. We talk about you know hearing loss, limb loss, loss of a sensory modality, um, loss of function. Um, and there is loss. There is loss, and there is grief, and there is um, continued loss over time. But there's also gain. And I think people, non-disabled people tend to only see the loss and they don't necessarily see the gain and they don't see the gain that is specific to the experience of disability. And the, 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 uh, the writer Rebecca Atkinson had this wonderful expression when she was talking about her experience of going blind as an adult. And she said, mm-hmm. if this experiment in going blind has taught me anything, it's that what you lose in one place, you gain in another. And while a blind life might be different than a sighted life, it is not lesser. And I think that rings true for a lot of people for their experience of disability. It's like, yes, there is loss. Yes, there are good things that you miss out on. Yes, there is, um, with respect to some things that you care about and some aspects of your life, disability is a harm. But in with respect to other aspects of your life and other features of your life, disability can also be a benefit. And that's something that, is I think harder for non-disabled people to see. And I think if you think about this, like if you think of it almost like a trade-off, there can be plenty of ways in which just on the whole, you don't think of yourself as worse off for being disabled because the benefits and the harms kind of balance each other. I think for some people, even the benefits outweigh the harms. Um, It's not at all uncommon. We have actually data on this for disabled people to say they would not prefer to be non-disabled and they wouldn't want a cure for their disability. Um, that's also, of course, consistent. And I think this is important. It's consistent with disability being bad for some people, right? For some people, it might just suck, right? Depending mm-hmm. on what they want, depending on their personality, depending on their their desires. Like, you know, I have plenty of deaf friends who I think are not made worse by deafness, who I think have these uh, flourishing rich lives. And I don't think deafness is bad for them. I think deafness probably was really bad for Beethoven, right? And I think uh-huh. you don't you don't have to accept that deafness is bad on the whole or that deafness is uh, like completely suboptimal to be able to say, yeah, sure, it sucked for Beethoven. And that was a tragedy for him. And like, we should feel sorry for him. That's bad. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, from a non-disabled person's perspective, I, I do get what you're saying in principle. I certainly get the idea of like mixed goods and things like that. Um, I think where i struggle right if i'm if i'm trying to to not just agree with everything that you're saying um right is that like i have a hard time i mean i i have a hard time making sense of concrete examples of how disability provides a a positive that that offsets the negative which is why i can fully Mm -hmm. understand why i think some people are very hesitant to say there are negatives because they're afraid of making the case for the positives and so yeah it's you know it's easier to just say there's neither positives nor negatives or something maybe something like that but could you give like some concrete examples of positives that you feel like come about as a result because of disability okay great yeah um so a couple ones that i've like heard people i'll I'll give i'll give some ones that i've heard people other than myself talk about so um i've definitely heard blind people talk about the extent to which they really value for example i've heard more than one uh blind woman say something to the effect of um they have no concept of what it would be like to feel self-conscious about their appearance Hmm. and as a woman, that's a pretty powerful thing. Mm-hmm. It's not even that like they don't feel self-conscious about their appearance or don't have that urge to check the mirror or be like, look, do I look? It's like they don't even understand what that would be. They don't have that category. <laughs> yeah. They're also, they value the inability. You know, there's all this like terrifying data about how quickly we visually stereotype people and how that affects our perceptions. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not able to do that. Um they're not able to visually stereotype people or form preconceptions about people based on what they look like. And I think that affects their experience of the world in a, in a way that, that they claim to value. And I believe them. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of my deaf friends have said things to the effect of um, they value being able to be in like very crowded public spaces, like, like the streets of New York or London and Mm -hmm. have it be totally quiet. Like, just mm-hmm. have 
nothing like the noise pollution or just like have a sea of people around you and in a way just be in your own space. Um, I actually, one of my uh, deaf friends was saying the other day, she has hearing aids that give her some access to sound. And she was like, do you know, the older I get, the less I use these. Cause I just, I just, <laughs> I just don't want mm. it. Just, it becomes less and less important. And I think that these kind of differences in sensory experience of the world, I think it, it, it makes, it makes sense that they might um, add a dimension to a person's lived experience. Just like having assigned language be your primary language just changes your relationship to language in a way that I think they think is really interesting. And I understand why people value that. Um, a lot of people whose first language is a, a sign language or whose primary language is a sign language just talk about how it's so much more expressive um, than spoken language. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I think, that, I think that definitely makes sense in terms of adding a, a sort of unique dimension to experiences in some kind of ways or, or providing a different way of engaging with the world, especially the world that is is trying to mess with us in lots of problematic ways. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, this is this is often like adding that dimension that can be kind of liberatory from the way that that, you know, norms and stereotypes are often um imposed on people i remember mm -hmm. uh, so my friend joe stramondo who's also a philosophy professor um we were talking one time about the way in which being disabled and having a disabled body can often be kind of liberatory from certain norms norms about appearance norms about hmm. you know everybody tells you like what your body is supposed to be like what it's supposed to be able to do what it's supposed to look like and there is this real sense in which um ought implies can um, mm -hmm. And so if you have a body that just obviously cannot meet those standards, then you're just like, oh, okay, right, I'm going to go about my business, because it's very clear that those norms don't apply to you in some way. And so it, it can be incredibly liberating. And so we were, we were talking about this. And then Joe said, uh, so Joe's uh, a dwarf. And he said, uh, he was like, yeah, I mean, I'm three feet tall. Why would I care if I have a six pack? Um, <laughs> And it's just like <laughs> remains one of the most awesome things that anyone has ever said. <laughs> um, it's just like just extremely true. I think, and this is true of my own experience as a woman. Like the more the more visibly disabled I have become, um, because for me this has been a progression over the years. Um, mm. The more I've just, it's been amazing. It's been great. <laughs> just, mm. It's been more and more liberatory from just like just not having to care about all these things that even as an ardent feminist, even as someone who was like, I, I knew that I shouldn't care. We all care because the world makes us care. Um, mm -hmm. It just it be has become so freeing to mm -hmm. have a body that just feels like, yeah, you know, those 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 norms aren't for you in some mm -hmm. way. Um, I think more generally, it's easier for a lot of people, especially people who who are are visibly disabled, it's kind of like um, you can you can lean into your you can you can feel free to lean into your idiosyncrasies because man, you're already weird. Like you don't have a choice about that. Um, right. You do you do not. Life has made that choice for you, and so you're like, well, okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so again, that can feel kind of liberatory, and it can you know I feel. And, it, and and a great affinity for people who are you know who are also weird in some way um mm -hmm. right and so i feel like i i i have so many interesting and rich people in my life because these are the people that, that i have an affinity for mm -hmm. um just i mean for for me personally i think one of the ways that my, my own experience of disability has been um just really one of the best things in my life has been the extent to which um, it has forced me to be kind to myself um, mm -hmm. in a way that I would not otherwise have been. So, you know, we're academics, we all have to be self-motivated and we all have to be um, driven mm -hmm. to do the kind of work that we do. And I think I that I does encourage, <laughs> yeah, it does encourage a type of workaholism. Um, mm, I think sure. it's no accident that, you know, most academics tend to be workaholics and things like that. And um, my disability is such that it's basically impossible for me to be a workaholic. Because mm -hmm. if I tried, I would just end up in the hospital. Like if I don't 
limit myself. And if I don't engage in very careful practices of self-care, I will just, thing, things will go down quickly and then uh, they will go downhill quickly. And then, and then I can't get work done. Right? And so I have had to adjust my pace of life and I've had to adjust my expectations and I've had to take care of myself in a way that I would not have chosen for myself, mm-hmm. but in a way that has just made me so much happier <laughs> and so much more content um, that I just profoundly believe that I would not be nearly, nearly as happy or relaxed or content with my life if I didn't have the disability that I have, knowing what I know about my personality. It's really interesting that you say all that because I was just thinking um, one other advantage that I might I might put forward as a, as a potential kind of benefit was something you were talking about earlier, um, you know, when you were talking about how um, non-disabled people tend to... Um, um, overrate the the amount of of harm or, or the negative experience of it or something like that and it was making me think of like the classic like buddhist and taoist stuff about you know to have a body is to suffer um yeah and that like disabled individuals in a sense are able to to come maybe per- or perhaps are given more chance to come to terms with that in a more functional way than some of us are um you know, i think this us, is this I, is Absolutely true. And especially, especially when you think about aging, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, exactly. it, it's for every single one of us, right? This, it's a downbound train, right? This is, uh, <laughs> um, this is the human condition, right? It's that mm-hmm. we will decline and we will decay. And that is what will happen to us if we are lucky. Um, and <laughs> Best one case. thing that I've, I have noticed uh, as I've gotten older is the extent to which like so many of my able-bodied friends as they are, you know, um, facing some of the realities of aging, it's like they're, they're overwhelmed by the, Mm -hmm. by the tragedy of they're like, what, you know, because suddenly you get to like, you're 40 and your body doesn't quite (laughs) function the way you would exactly want it to. And you're like, what? is this nonsense like what Mm -hmm. um and i i think there can definitely be a way in which um disability kind of forces you to confront the reality of the the limitations of the human body and the inevitability of decline and uh the inevitability of you know the truth of living in one of these sacks of meat um that's gonna give out on you Mm -hmm. and i think that can definitely have benefits to your life going forward and to just how how you think about things that um that are hard to quantify but they're real yeah so um that's great but um you also have mentioned i think that like you you've gotten a little tired of of addressing these things on an abstract level sometimes which i guess you know is understandable as philosophers we're always like spending too much time at the top of the mountain um so i'm I'm, going to talk a little bit before we're out of time on like some of the real world implications of your your view i think you've done a great job sort of laying it out here um how, for example, right, would your view handle something like the invention of a technology that gave blind people the choices to see again? Ooh, yeah. See, this is why I'm glad I'm a philosopher and not like policymaker. Um, no. So <laughs> when I said when I said the thing, uh, I think I think you're afraid. Yeah, I, I mentioned in uh, what was it? it was, I this guess it was an interview, interview for 360. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll yeah. throw it up in the show notes as well for folks oh, who are yeah, wondering no. where I'm where I'm pulling all your quotes from. <laughs> It's that there there are certain types. So I'm I'm never tired of talking about things that in uh, abstract questions in general because mm-hmm. I love abstraction. That's where I live. There are certain kinds of questions where I feel like if we try to address them at a very abstract level, mm-hmm. that make that makes me kind of uncomfortable. And so fair, some, fair like Sorry, some I of the characterize that you're totally yeah, some I, of the questions about like you know, reproductive decision-making in the context of disability. I'm just like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to be one of these people that's telling, you know, especially like p- potential mothers what they what they ought to do when I don't know their life and I don't know their situation. And I just like, something feels uncomfortable about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that the issues of disability and technology are some of the most interesting and the most fascinating and the most intricate and I guess what I would say about like curative technology. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a reminds me of the cases like this would be would this be a technology that 
gives blind people the ability to process information that we would usually process by sight? Or would this be a technology that just like cures blindness, like CRISPR or something like that? that mm, I think um, oh, it's interesting. Are we, talk, are we talking Jordy's visor? Yeah, I was just thinking talking? like Jordy's visor, but like, awesome. okay. uh, is there, yeah, is there a difference between that and regrowing the eyes or something? Yes, because of course Jordy's can can I nerd out sure. about Star Trek The Next Generation? Oh, oh yeah, for, you're, you're in good company okay. here. <laughs> I figured I was in safe hands, but... <laughs> I mean, it's not philosophers um, in space, but we're close enough, so it's fine. I mean, okay, there there are lots of problems we can raise about the depiction of Jordy and Star Trek: The Next Generation um, as a as an icon for disability. Oh, we need to get you on philosophers in space for this. Oh, just... he ha- he has this like magic thing that just is like, oh right, he's he's blind, but he's not limited. But we do. It does seem that Jordy. Jordy can interpret visual information, but he doesn't have the same experience of the world as, as someone who's sighted, right? And he does, he, there's a, mm-hmm. one point where I think he says something like, uh, but, you know, I never get to see the sunset or something like that. Like, you get the feeling that he doesn't, mm-hmm. he's not able to aesthetically appreciate um, visual information the way that normally sighted people do, but he can take it in and he can process it. So he's not, like, functionally limited. Mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. his um by the fact that he's blind um mm-hmm. so i think actually like jordy's visor is not a million miles away from like how people describe the experience of uh having a, a cochlear implant so a cochlear implant doesn't cure deafness it gives deaf people access to sound and it allows them to interpret sound but it doesn't give them the experience of sound that a native hearing person has mm-hmm and I think that's something that often gets lost in translation when people talk about cochlear implants. Do you think this makes for a salient ethical difference then? Yes, I do. Uh, but I don't I, I don't want to get bogged down in talking about uh, a cochlear implant because mm-hmm. that's a minefield. <laughs> but I think like so in general, I think assistive technology is fantastic. And I think the more the better. And I think the more things like Jordy's, you know, the more that we can, the more that we can allow disabled people autonomy and choice in how mm-hmm. and to what extent they function, I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think in a perfect world, there's also nothing wrong with cures because, like I said, disability might be by itself neutral, but not neutral for everybody, right? It might be harmful for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those people, it would be good for them to have choice about whether or not they want to be disabled. I think the danger with cures is that people who are not disabled think they are the solution to the problems that disabled people face because mm-hmm. they think of disability as a biomedical problem rather than a political problem. And so cures so often are an apolitical solution to what I think is more often than not fundamentally a political problem, a political problem of oppression. And so people are like, oh, just until there's a cure, fight for the cure. And they will spend all this money on cures when the money could actually do a lot more good if we spent it on trying to get better access to jobs for disabled people or Mm -hmm. better access to assistive care or so on and so forth. Um, So I think... The, the the issue with cures is more how they will be implemented in an imperfect society. I think as far as assistive technology goes, though, bring it on. We need more of it. We need better of it. And we need assistive technology that's tailored for disabled people's lives and how they want to live. And everybody mm-hmm. should read Joe Stramondo's new paper on the difference between curative technology and assistive technology, because it's really good. Fair enough. Yeah, if you want to give me that info, I can throw that in the show notes um, as well. Awesome. And uh, I feel like I want to I want to get you back on for a part two at some point to talk about technology and disability. I, I think you agree. It's a it's a huge topic. And it's such a huge topic, and it's a and fascinating like, I, topic. I could rant for just like twenty minutes about like because um, I'm I'm in Jersey and we use the MTA and the like the the disability access people with wheelchairs on the buses in the MTA is horrifying. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, you're this is, totally. This is a common yeah. refrain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that, I think like, also in general, there's technology this, that we could be fixing right now that wouldn't be hard to fix that would improve yeah. people's quality of life much more than like yeah. the hope of a cure. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying I have, there. 
I have so many views on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to save it. We're going to table that because we, do we, it. we do don't it. have enough time on this episode, but we're coming back to it. Um, but I do want to talk about something else that you brought up because we haven't talked at all about um, um, mental disability. And I know that it's not your emphasis and you have good reasons for thinking that like they may be um, hard questions to unify um, under one kind of theory. But I wanted to highlight that like you and I share this view think that maybe philosophy, especially particularly metaphysics, is a kind of addiction of sorts. I think you were saying <laughs> that you you uh, find it addictive in that way. And I'm curious, do you consider a philosophy, or if not philosophy, um, addictive um, personalities or something like that to be a kind of mental disability? Oh, tough question. Um, so <laughs> well, We've only got a few minutes left, so I figured I'd drop a few bombs here at the end. Excellent, excellent. Um, so I think actually one of the most fascinating questions about um, how we understand uh, psychological disability at the moment is what's the difference between like psychological pathology or psychological disability and just just being weird, you know, just being... Mm -hmm just being unusual, just being, and I, I think that's can sometimes be a hard difference to quantify. Um, in terms of addiction, more broadly, addiction is not classified as a disability by the ADA. Um, but there are very specific reasons why that is the case. Um, hmm. more broadly, I don't see any reason why addictive personalities wouldn't in a, in a broader sense where we're not just talking about what's classified as disability under the law, but just to think about what counts as, uh, you know, psychological disability sure seems mm -hmm. like a disability, right? <laughs> this question, this question of whether being fascinated by philosophy, would count as a disability. I think I, I think I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna take a hard pass on that one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm I'm fully sympathetic to it. Like from my own internal perspective, as someone who has an addictive personality and is a philosopher, um, I experience the the desire to argue as a compulsion. Certainly on par with you know, I used to smoke cigarettes. Certainly yeah. on par with the experience of the desire to smoke cigarettes, and that like I think it makes me an easy mark for social media, for example, where like. <laughs> I can just I can debate people forever. It's just like having a main line right into your arm all the time. Um, and I'm, I just worry that I'm like, you know, if I had grown up with the Internet, I would have been totally doomed. And as it is, I feel like I'm I'm just barely hanging on. Um, and I, I, you know, so that, that was just where I was coming from on that particular oh, I issue. Totally get, yeah, I, here's what here's what I'll say. Um, I do think. One one thing that I often get from philosophers when I'm I'm presenting kind of my view of disability is this like quick and dirty argument for why disability is something bad or something suboptimal. And it's kind of the state of nature argument that's like, well, look, mm -hmm. you know, people like you are doing okay now, but you know, um in 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 the jungle, you you would be the people who would be more likely to get eaten by tigers, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. when the zombie apocalypse comes. Mm -hmm. you're 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 weaker and less able to defend yourself and oh you know you're gonna you're gonna be the ones that, that fall to the zombies first um or something like that um oh, so it's I kind of to, just, I have to just jump in for a second for anyone who's interested in that exact point read world war z it's a wonderful <laughs> book and there's a character in it who's blind who has one of the most amazing character arcs in the whole Fantastic. book so yeah sorry <laughs> well so it's it's always really hilarious to me um, when this point is raised to me by philosophers, as it typically is, because I like look around my department or like a conference room full of philosophers. And I think, look, it is true, right, that if the zombie apocalypse were to break out <laughs> in my department, I would probably not survive. Right. But it is very non-obvious to me that I'm going to die first. <laughs> like, I think I can point to quite a few I, of I my colleagues. I know some of the people in your department, are, and I, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scrappy, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, it's true. I've, I've had to learn to be resourceful. I think you know, um, basically, when the zombie apocalypse comes, all the philosophers are dying soon, except Laurie Paul. Oh. And do you know so the fun fact about Laurie Paul is she's some like insane degree of black belt in Taekwondo mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. can break concrete with her feet. So yeah, Laurie's going to be fine. The rest of us are dead. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it, it it's not clear to me that at least uh, in terms of survivability, philosophy is not 
something that will uh, get you killed in the state. Of I also think that that's that's a bad argument in the sense that look, we can super bad, you know, yeah. Well, well, like in the sense that like what we were talking about earlier with the different perspective advantage that disability could potentially give you that like you know the people who talk about the state of nature like that think that like when we get there it's going to be you know one v one you know like duels for the rest of our lives but like even in that situation communities immediately form and individuals who understand the value of community more are going to be more willing to you know assemble and, and buy into those those new social contracts and so i i find it unreasonable that like someone with a disability couldn't be you know couldn't be using their community organizing abilities in the uh, zombie apocalypse to to better their quality of life and people around them yeah no agreed Great. Well, I think we've I think we've had actually a really great endpoint for this particular conversation in zombie apocalypse. Um, I think zombie apocalypse is is a quality way to end the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So I think we should move to our our lightning round, where uh -oh. I, I believe you're familiar with how this works. But I'm, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the lightning yeah. rounds. Good. So you can you can start drinking, and I'll explain the rules. So uh, I'm going to give you a list of things, right? You get to say real or not real, and those are your only options. There's no hedging. You don't have to define the terms. Um, and then that's it. Okay. Is that okay. You ready for this? Uh, okay. So, so, so first yeah. of all, I have to prime you with the important question: Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay. You're on the hook for something being real. So let's find out what it is. All right. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Mm, no. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Pass. <laughs> oh, can pass. There's no passing in lightning round. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um. Yes. <laughs> real. Okay. Uh, free will. Real. Selves. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Real. Species. Um. Real. <laughs> Morality. Real. Rights. I'm going to be like the polar opposite of Liam on this. I love it. I love it. This is so great. Do it. <laughs> Let's Morality. do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Morality. Real. Rights. Uh, not real. Hmm. All right. God. Uh, sorry. Knowledge. Uh, real. Gods. God. Like plural. Uh, God or gods, as you prefer. Real. Okay. Society. Well, I guess. Let's say real. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real holes as in a hole in the ground yeah not real chairs Ooh, um real yeah oh, sandwiches i mean real it's a, it's a taxonomy question yeah uh, science <laughs> real uh, natural laws hmm yeah he's well <laughs> It all depends on what you mean by real. Um, <laughs> keep keep it together, philosopher. Right, I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. Uh, not real. Beauty. Uh, fuck it. Real. <laughs> I'm dying. Uh, causality. Um, not real. Dharmas. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> It's like the fa uh, fundamental, it's, this, is, this is the one for catching Buddhists, right? It's fundamental features of reality, like a bit of color or something like that. Sweet. Real. The basic atoms of reality. Great. There you go. Uh, and then for you in particular, right? Disability. Real. And dogs. Real. So real, right? The so most real. real of all the things. The realest thing. Real <laughs> AF. You survived. How do you feel? I feel dead inside. <laughs> I feel, I just, I want to scream into the void about nuance. <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? It's, it's the, the worst, worst fucking thing. thing. <laughs> I don't know why, but it is. It's so good, but it's terrible. <laughs> and I, like, I hope everyone understands, no one is faking this pain. Like, this is, this is a legitimate mental sensation it that is, people are experiencing. It is the worst pain. <laughs> mm. 
I um I had to answer these for another podcast because they've taken they've taken up the mantle of the lightning round and I it was horrible when I went through it. Um and I regret calling colors um not real. I feel like and I'm I feel I'm sympathetic to you in that like once you 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 start to open up the door to like real things as socially constructed or more sophisticated that like you go the opposite of people like Liam. <laughs> Yeah, exactly yeah and it's just like at every stage i'm like but i want to i want to clarify what what is meant here by yep, real yep, no no philosophy i'd like torture. to now redefine the term every yep. single time no yep. i'm i'm filled i'm filled with regret already um thank mm-hmm. you thank you for that well luckily you have dogs to comfort you so exactly that's all i, I need feel too bad for you <laughs> all right well elizabeth thank you so much for coming on and thank you talking thank about you this for stuff. having and me yeah, definitely get you back on for another episode at some point. And um, in the meantime, do you want to tell folks where they can find your work? Uh, yes. Uh, so you can find my work uh, on my website, my personal website, not my UVA website. My UVA website sucks. Um, I have no mm-hmm. control over that. Um, and you can find it on Phil Papers. Okay. Thanks very much. And the, again, the book is Minority Body, A Theory of Disability. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. All right. We'll catch you later. Thank you so much. I want to give an extra special start to a new voidy year thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all and your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to. So thanks to Trilobite Tark. Thanks to Jonathan Yance-Jones. Thanks to Joel Nield. And thanks to Jason Lee Baez, who's going to hopefully be a guest on the show in the near future. Um, thank you all so much for joining. And um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And of course, as always, extra top of the tier thanks to our uh, longest, most long term, biggest supporter, Dave Maslich. I really genuinely do appreciate all y'all. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you'd like to support the show, Please leave us a five-star rating or review on a podcast app near you. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. Um, And if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. It's just $4 a month, and you get our bonus book club content. Um, And most importantly, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 